0: That's where we're going to start. John 14, 6. And it says this. It'll be on the screens if you don't have your Bible with you. Jesus told him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one can come to the Father except through me. That's it right there. Now, as I said, you, Jesus has been walking with these guys for a while and they're starting to ask questions. And they have questions like, where are you going? You know, how will we know the way? How will you know the way? Jesus says, I am the way. You know, but they're asking the kind of questions that if you and I were following somebody, we might want to ask, right? You know, where are we going to go? How are we going to end up? How are we going to get there? How are we going to know when we're there? Those kind of questions. And so Jesus drops this bomb on him. He says, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one can come to the Father except through me. Now, at the time, this would have been a pretty controversial statement uh, because you know, every uh, Jewish, Jewish man would have grown up a Jewish boy and in his hometown he would have had a priest or priests that could have gotten him to God. You know, he would have believed that if he followed the law that at the end of his life he would have ended up in heaven, he could have gotten to God. At least some of them would have. And so it's a very controversial statement when Jesus comes in and says, no, no, I am the way and the truth and the life and no one can come to the Father except through me. Very controversial at the time. And it still is today, right? You know, last week... Was Easter, and as Paul said, we had a great celebration here. A lot of people, and we celebrated a Jesus that rose from the dead after he was crucified. And, and that whole crucifixion thing is kind of hard for us in in modern day America to wrap our brains around, isn't it? I mean, to think about somebody who was crucified, we probably only know. In fact, when when I ask around, we probably only know the names of two people who were crucified by the Romans. Right? I mean, we know Jesus Christ, and then there was one other that's not in the Bible. Can anybody think of that? Yeah, Spartacus, right? So, so Jesus and Spartacus, and, and, and the reason we even know the story of Spartacus was because the Roman government really wanted you to know the story of Spartacus. Okay, see, Spartacus was a gladiator that was born about 100 years before Jesus, And Spartacus, uh, the gladiators were uh, trained, they were slaves of the Roman authorities, and they were trained to fight and kill. And so Spartacus was a gladiator, but he was tired of this lifestyle, and so he broke free with about uh, 70 other gladiators, and with them in 73 BC, uh, they led a slave rebellion. In fact, Spartacus and his band of gladiators freed tens of thousands of Roman slaves, and led an uprising against the Roman government. And and it took somewhere, the Romans eventually overcame this uprising, but it took somewhere between 30,000 and 100,000 Roman soldiers to overcome this slave rebellion. So it was a huge expense of, of money and time and lives to overcome this slave rebellion. Now the reason you know this, the reason you know about Spartacus is because the Roman government is very invested in making sure that people knew about the story of Spartacus. You know, they spent a lot of lives, a lot of money overcoming the slave rebellion and, and had it succeeded, it would have changed the balance of power in the Roman Empire. And in fact, because the Roman Empire was the source of pretty much all power in the world, it would have changed the history of the world had this slave rebellion uh, succeeded. And so Rome made sure that everyone knew, hey, this is what happens if you mess with us because the, the, the rebellion was overcome The slaves were defeated and Spartacus was crucified. And so Rome wanted to make sure that they told that story so that anybody who had any thoughts about leading a slave rebellion would see, hey, this is what happens when you mess with us, okay? So, in fact, to this day, there's even some questions about whether Spartacus was actually crucified or not. There are a lot of historians when they look back and they say, well, it's quite possible, in fact, evidence points to that he was killed in battle and then his body was hung up on a cross so that people would believe that he was crucified. Uh, in fact, there's even some historians that go so far as to say, well, he was never on a cross at all. That Spartacus was killed in battle. And the Roman government was just so compelling at telling the story that people today, even you know, 2,000, 2,100 years later, still know this story of Spartacus. Of course, it doesn't hurt that it, there was a movie made of it and TV series and things like that. And that's probably really why you know the story. But the reason the story even got out of the first century was because the Roman government wanted to make sure that everybody knew the story of Spartacus. So let me ask you this. How on earth do we know the story of Jesus? I mean, here's a man that traveled around claiming to be God or or claiming to be the Son of God and at his death really only had 12 followers, one of whom wasn't working out really well, right? And so 11 people at his death that were there with him and, and as far as we can tell, none of them were sold out enough so that when he was on trial, they were willing to be seen with him. I mean, they, when, when the night that Jesus was tried and, and when he was killed, they were running for their lives, right? In fact, Peter, who we often associate as Jesus' closest disciple, who said he would never deny Jesus, did it three times in one night. Uh, you know, once they saw what happened to Jesus, it would have been much easier for the story of Jesus to have died with the person of Jesus. But it didn't. And not only didn't the story of Jesus die, but it grew. And more people started following Jesus after his death than before it. And it's grown over the last 2,000 years to the point where now almost everybody in the world knows who Jesus is. And about two-thirds of the world's population, when you consider Jews, Christians, and Muslims, about two-thirds of the world's population believes that Jesus is somehow tied to God. And about half of those people, or one-third of the world's population, about two billion people are Christians, a religion that teaches in no uncertain terms that Jesus is the Son of God and that there's no way to salvation but through Jesus. And that Jesus is the only way to heaven. But is that possible? I mean, how can it be? Can Jesus be the only way? Well, I'm not going to leave you in suspense. I think the answer is yes. I didn't want to wait till the end to tell you that. uh, But I want to tell you why. And I think uh, that the reason why I think that Jesus can be the only way is very closely tied to the reason we even know the story of Jesus and the crucifixion in the first place. The reason that story even made it out of the first century. And we're going to talk about that. But before we do, I want to talk about the three, I think, most common arguments we probably hear against Jesus being the only way and talk about why when you look at these arguments in depth, I think they just don't add up. Uh, and so I I didn't make a lot of notes for you guys I figure you can take notes where you want but uh, we're going to look at these three arguments and the first one is this aren't all religions basically the same I mean this sort of makes sense on the surface especially when you look at Christianity and Judaism right I mean Jesus was a Jew and he taught at Jewish synagogues and so they have to be close to the same right And, and even Islam which is the world's second largest religion after Christianity Islam shares an origin with Christianity did you know that Uh, Abraham, who in many ways is considered the patriarch of Jews and then therefore Christians, um, had a son named Ishmael. Now Ishmael was a result of a marriage between Abraham and his wife's slave girl. So the way this story works, you probably heard this story in the book of Genesis, is Abraham and Sarah were promised a child by God. And, uh, but they were not able to have children. They were kept from having children. And so Sarah decided, hey, maybe we can create a family if, if I give you my slave girl, Hagar. And so Abraham and Hagar have a child named Ishmael. And this is Abraham's first son. Okay, and then, and then later, God allows Sarah to have children. So Abraham and Sarah have a child named Isaac. And Isaac is the one that God promised, uh, Abraham promised through Isaac, he would have as many descendants as there are stars in the sky. And so Abraham, Abraham has a second son, Isaac. Isaac is kind of the, the preferred son. And so Sarah is jealous and she expels Ishmael and Hagar out of the land. And so, but then God tells Ishmael that he will have a great nation of his own. And God says in Genesis, you can read this all in the book of Genesis, God says, and he will always be at war with his brothers. And now it's largely believed that Muhammad, who's the founder of Islam, is descended from Ishmael and the Ishmaelites. And that Isaac obviously is the father of Jacob who became Israel and he's the father of the Jews. And, so, and God says that the two will always be at war. And so if you ever think you have a cure for world peace, you should know. God says there will always be conflict between Christians and Muslims. Uh, but it's easy with that kind of shared history how you could get confused thinking that these three major world religions, all starting from the same place, could eventually end up in the same place with all of their adherents living together peacefully in heaven. But that can't possibly happen. And now, I'm kind of skipping over two other major oral religions, Buddhism and Hinduism, because their beliefs are way far off from uh, the other three. I mean, Hinduism doesn't believe in one God, doesn't believe in a place where you go and live forever. It believes in a reincarnation where, based on how you did in a previous life, that decides if you come back in a higher or a lower place. And, and Buddhism doesn't believe in a God at all, but like you can find everything you need inside of you. But if you take those five faiths, now, you get about 85% of the world's population. Most people believe one of those few things. And so still, many people kind of look at these faiths and assume that they're all the same. You know, that, that none of them can have the exact right doctrine. So somewhere in the mix is the answer. And because nobody can have a monopoly on truth. Uh, but, but ironically, the idea that none of these is true is, is a religion, <laughs> you know it's a belief system, right? The idea that I don't believe any one of these, so I can pick and choose what I want from these other belief systems that's a religion, right i'm making my own religion and 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 the the idea that I can make my own truth, you know that, uh, and if I can be so bold, I, just, I think that's pretty ridiculous i mean if If you go so far as to believe there is a God, you know a true God, a being, and that he or she or it has to have some sort of characteristics, right? I mean, he, she, it has to have something that's true about him, her, or it. And if he, she, or it actually created us, then we can't just pick or choose the characteristics that we believe God should have and impose them on him, her, or it. I mean, are you following me? It's like if you witness a crime... Okay, you you see this suspect and a suspect is running away from a building with a gun and he is a tall uh, bearded man in a brown leather jacket and blue jeans and he jumps on a Honda Goldwing motorcycle. But then somebody else saw the same crime. They were right there next to you and they saw the same thing. And they start to describe the suspect as a blonde woman in a white dress. And and you kind of look, you wouldn't go, well, maybe we're both right. I mean that would be ridiculous, right to think well maybe maybe i 'm right, and maybe you 're right, or maybe we 're both part right, and maybe it was a bearded woman in a dress you know that 's ridiculous to think that, and so but we do the same thing with God, I think sometimes we 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 take the characteristics that we want to see and we try to impose them on god and, and to say that all religions are equally valid ignores the very major doctrinal differences in each one it 's a naive view it, it just doesn 't work and so all religions are not the same and since they're not the same they can't all be equally valid Uh, so let's look at the second argument the second argument is this that good people go to heaven and bad people don't now that makes sense right I mean, this is the idea that pervades our media. You know, whenever we talk about religion in the media, this is kind of the idea we get: that, that good people go to heaven. People who do good things, you know, the ones are the ones who go to heaven. And I think this idea appeals to us a lot because it seems fair, doesn't it? I mean, it seems fair if there's if there's a good God, he lives in a good place, and he lives there with good people. And so, if you believe that, then then how you get to heaven uh, rests less on what you believe and more about how you behave in life, right? It it seems fair. But let me remind you, and if you've lived on this earth any amount of time at all, you already know this, just because it's fair doesn't mean it's right. Just because it's fair doesn't mean it's right. But But I even want to examine this idea that good people go to heaven is really fair. I mean, is it really? And if so, how good is good enough? I mean, think about this. Do you have to get an A? You know, when I was in school, 90% was kind of the threshold for an A, right? I think that's still true. 90%, I mean, is, is 90%, is that kind of the cutoff to get to heaven? Only A students get to heaven? Uh, that seems maybe a little rough, but maybe it's 70%. You know, can you be a, a C student, straight C student and get to heaven? 70%? Uh, I don't know. How about 50%? Maybe that's it. Maybe that makes sense. That like, if you do one more good thing in your life than all the bad things you do, if it's like 50% plus one, and you take all the good things and all the bad things and you weigh them, that seems kind of fair, right? I mean, more good than bad? Uh, Then then I'm good to go. Uh, Well, and then who decides? I mean, is it God? If it's God, it seems like it would be nice if there were just a little clearer idea of how this whole operation works, right? I mean, if good people go to heaven, and if it were fair, shouldn't there be some clarity? I mean, I remember when I was a freshman in college, and I took... My very first engineering class, and every incoming freshman engineer, no matter where you're going, chemical engineering or mechanical engineering or whatever, they all take this class, and it's called statics and dynamics. And it's a horrible class. Nobody looked forward to it, but everybody had to take it. There were, I don't know, 5,000 freshman engineers that took this class that year at Purdue. And, And I remember sitting in on the first exam, and I got it back, and out of 100 possible points, I got a 27. I know, a 27, right? And you know how I felt, right? A 27 out of 100. Um, I don't know how long it's been since you've been in school, but that's not an A. <laughs> but then I heard that the best score in the class was a 43. Well, now I felt a little better, right? Because out of a, a 100, 27 isn't so good. But next to a 43, it's not great, but it's not terrible. So when I compare myself to the other students in the class, I look pretty good. But when I compared myself to the professor's standard, Of 100%, I still wasn't doing so well. And the bad part was he didn't grade on a curve. And when I heard that the highest score in the class was a 43, I thought, this test is not fair. But you know what? Just because it wasn't fair didn't mean it wasn't true. So let's just assume that God is extremely merciful and that the threshold is only 10%. Okay, like if 10% of all the things you do in your life, 10% of them are good, then you're going to go to heaven, right? Okay, 10%, extremely merciful God. Here's what that means. First of all, you and I are going to see some people in heaven that we didn't really expect to see there, okay? But second, it's going to mean this. Even if the threshold is 10%, there are going to be people that miss it by one deed, by one thing, you know they they did one more bad thing than they should have, or they missed one opportunity to do something well. And no matter that's true, no matter where you set the bar, if it's ten percent or fifty percent or seventy percent, some people would just barely miss it. And the thinking for these people likely would be, "If I had only known, you know, God, if you had only told me how good I'd have to be, I would have done it." It's not fair. Well, okay then. Maybe it's not about deeds. Maybe it's not about doing good things, really. Maybe instead, it's about the law. You know, maybe it's about not doing bad things, not doing the thing God tells us not to do, right? So so let's look at that. You know, God's given us the law for a reason. He's given us the Ten Commandments. Let's look at the Ten Commandments, okay? Uh, We like the Ten Commandments, right? Uh, We don't always follow them, but we like them. Um, But there are ten things that you should know. They're found in Exodus chapter 20. This can be your homework. You can look these up later. I'll, I'll just give them to you quickly. There are ten things. First, have no other gods other than God. That seems pretty simple. Two, don't have any idols. A little tougher. Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Okay, done that. Uh, remember the Sabbath and keep it holy. Anybody good at that? Uh, honor your father and mother. Don't murder. Don't commit adultery. Don't steal. Don't lie. Don't covet your neighbor's house or his wife or his lawn or his BMW. You know, there are ten things. Pretty easy, right? Ten things. I mean, anybody here ever kept them all? Well, that's okay. Do you know why it's okay? Because it doesn't tell us anything in those ten things about what our eternity will be like if we keep them. Did you know that? In the Ten Commandments, there's nothing about what our eternity will be like if we don't keep them. In fact, if you look at the Ten Commandments, there's only one promise... About what happens if you keep the Ten Commandments, and it's found here in the fifth commandment. It's right here. Exodus twenty twelve says this Honor your father and your mother so that you may live long in the land the Lord your God is giving you. Honor your father and mother so that you may live long. That's for the students out there. So if you've got a student in the, in the room, this is the only promise God makes for keeping the Ten Commandments is to honor your father and mother. And I'm telling you that because your mom and dad have told you that your whole life and you don't believe them. So, but you already knew this because your dad's already told you probably more than once that if you don't honor him, you're not going to live very long. So you, you've heard that. It's from God. So there are no promises for us for following the law, although this is the Jewish view. I mean, when they look at the law, they look at the Torah, the Jews, they look at the Torah, which are the first five books in the Bible, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. And in in the Torah, the Holy Scripture for the Jews, there are over 600 laws, and many Jewish boys would have had them all memorized by the time they were 13. But there's no promise of eternal life for memorizing them, and there's none for keeping them. And there's no talk of eternal punishment for breaking them. In fact, the law, the first five books, the Torah, are so silent on eternity that there was a group of Jews that lived at the time of Jesus called the Sadducees, and the Sadducees didn't even believe there was an afterlife. They believed that once you were done here, you were done because the law is so silent on an afterlife. You know, Romans 3.20, uh, the Apostle Paul writes this. He says it this way. He says, For no one can ever be made right with God by doing what the law commands. The law simply shows us how sinful we are. You know, Paul spent his life as a Jewish boy and a Jewish man, spent his life memorizing these laws. And this is what he concludes, that no one can be made right with God by following the laws, that the law simply shows us how sinful we are. You know, there's one other thing about this fairness issue of good people go to heaven, and it's this. You know, no matter what the rules are, and we've already said we don't know, and no matter where the bar is, and we haven't really been told There will come a point in many of our lives where we could no longer do enough good things to make it. You know, there'll come a point for many of us where we've done so much bad stuff or we've missed so many opportunities to be good that even if we were good for the rest of our lives that we couldn't make it. And I think that leads us right into the third common argument against Jesus being the only way, and it's this. You know, isn't that view a little narrow-minded? Isn't arrogant to think that Jesus is the only answer? Isn't that unfair? I mean, this is a common view and it's common even among Christians. In fact, a recent, uh, poll by the Pew Research Center says that 70% of self-proclaimed Christians believe that there are other ways to heaven besides through Jesus. Now that's not 70% of people and it's not 70% of Americans This is 70% of Christians, 70% of people who claim claim Jesus as their Savior say that there are other ways to get to heaven, and I get that. I really do. I mean, our culture, there is a big emphasis on tolerance, isn't there? At least we like to think there is. I mean, in fact, in many places, the only thing that's not tolerated is a belief in Jesus, but that's a message for another day. But beyond Jesus' words sounding intolerant, there's something that bothers us about this idea, and it's this. You know, what about people who weren't fortunate enough to be born in a Christian country to Christian parents? You know, how, how could a loving God allow somebody, not, that many people, not to find him just because they don't know Jesus? You know, doesn't God care about them? You know, would a, would a loving God reject someone, a good and decent and kind person, just because of their faith? Well, first of all, let me just admit here that IDK. You know, I don't know exactly why God lets things work out the way he does. But I will admit this. I know that there's no way that I care more about those people than he does. You know, there's there's no way I feel more compassion towards Hindus than the God who created them. There's no way that I care more about atheists than God does. And you know what? You don't either. But here's what I do know first going back to something I said earlier just because it's not fair doesn't mean it's not true you know that right but let's even take a look at this fairness issue you know let's go back to our, our verse John 14 6 you know with regard to that Jesus says this I am the way and the truth and the life and no one can come to the Father except through me I think that's really the fairest way of all let me tell you what I mean by that and, and this is the only thing I bothered to put in your notes because I think it's important there are three things there. One is this: everyone's welcome. Everyone is welcome. You know, uh, John three sixteen said, "For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have eternal life." You know, whoever believes in Him will not perish, but have it. Everyone is welcome. That's what that verse says. The second one is this: everyone gets in the same way. You know. Uh, I love, Irwin uh, McManus was asked this question. He's a, he's a pastor and author. And he was asked this question on a radio show one time. Well, do you believe then that Muslims can't get to heaven? And, and McManus said, oh no, I believe Muslims can get to heaven. And Hindus can get to heaven. And Jews can get to heaven. And atheists can get to heaven. They just have to get to know Jesus first. And, you know, everybody gets in the same way. There, there's no privilege for being born to the right parents you know there 's no privilege for being born in the right country. Everybody has to take the same steps and the third one is this: everyone can meet the requirements you know uh, there 's this story that I love uh, during the crucifixion when Jesus is being crucified. Uh, some of the accounts tell us that there were two criminals, one on either side of him and 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 one of them one of the criminals was up there and as he was dying he was he was scoffing at Jesus, he was mocking Jesus, and then the other one says shut up you know don't you see that we're getting what we deserve but this guy jesus he hasn't done anything wrong and then this criminal turns to jesus and he says lord remember me when you come into your kingdom and probably one of the greatest most hopeful statements in all of scripture jesus turns to this this criminal hanging on the cross and he says i tell you the truth today you will be with me in paradise. And this criminal is one of those guys who was at that point in his life where there's no way he could have done enough good to get him into heaven, right? I mean, for him, there was no, hey, when I get down from here, I'm going to, you know, there was no, from now on, I will, or I will never again. You know, for him, this was the end. And he gets in, he meets the requirements. Everybody can meet the same requirements. I love that. I mean, it's, it's fair. So, why do I think it's right? You know, now, why do I believe Jesus is the only way to heaven? Well, as I said earlier, I think it's related to the same reason we even know the story. Uh, the, the story of Jesus' crucifixion even made it out of the first century to begin with. You know, after Jesus was killed, we know he was buried. Uh, and in the book of Luke, uh, one of the four gospels, the, the writer Luke takes great pains and talks in great detail about the tomb where Jesus was buried. You know, who, who owned the tomb? What it was made of? When he was buried? Who were the witnesses? This is the thing I love about the book of Luke. Luke was a doctor, so he was a scientist, and he was the kind of guy that investigated everything very thoroughly. And so, if you're at all a skeptic, and you haven't read your Bible very much, I would start in the book of Luke, because it says in, in, in Luke uh, chapter 1, Luke wrote that gospel for his friend Theophilus, um, who apparently was having a hard time believing what he was hearing about Jesus. And Luke says that he carefully investigated the facts for his friends so that he could be certain about what he'd heard. And so there's great detail in Luke. And, and, and we see uh, in Luke chapter 24, we see this account after Jesus is killed. Luke 24 uh, verse 1 says, But very early on Sunday morning, the women went to the tomb, taking the spices they had prepared. Now look what I'm talking about at the detail. It was Sunday morning. It was very early. And the women went and they took these spices they had prepared for the burial. Uh, Verse 2, they found that the stone had been rolled away from the entrance. So they went in, but they didn't find the body of the Lord Jesus. You know, as they stood there puzzled, two men suddenly appeared to them clothed in dazzling robes. Again, look at the detail. You know, these women were puzzled. They stood there. These men appeared. They were clothed in dazzling robes. Now the women were terrified and bowed, details, with their faces to the ground. The men asked, Why are you looking among the dead for someone who is alive? He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. Remember what he told you. Now I just want to stop right there. If you're already a believer, aren't you glad you serve a God who always does what he's told you? I mean, isn't that great that, that remember what he told you, that God always keeps his word. You should remember that. Remember what he told you back in Galilee, that the Son of Man must be betrayed into the hands of sinful man and be crucified, and that he would rise again on the third day. And then Luke goes on to describe how the women went to the disciples, to the eleven, to tell them this, and, and they didn't believe them. And so Peter, remember the one who denied Jesus, Peter runs to the tomb and he finds it empty. And and this weird turn of events in Scripture, Luke tells us that he finds the tomb empty and he walks back home wondering what has happened. See, here's the key. Of all the things that Jesus told them, the disciples couldn't believe that he could overcome death. They didn't get it. I mean, think about it. The reason they abandoned him when he was on trial was because they were afraid to die, right? And now Peter hears that he's raised from the dead. He runs to the tomb. He sees that it's empty. And instead of celebrating what could have been one of the most joyous things in all of Scripture, what does he do? He hangs his head and walks back home wondering what happened. They didn't believe him. Well, Luke goes on to describe how Jesus then appears in person to all 11 disciples after the resurrection. In fact, the Apostle Paul, later writing to the church in Corinth, says that he appeared to over 500 people at one time in one place. And Paul writes, at the time he wrote the letter, he said, and most of them are still alive. In other words, Paul says, don't take my word for it that Jesus rose from the dead and appeared to people. There are 500 people back in Jerusalem. Most of them are still alive. You can go ask them. You know, if you're in Corinth and you get this letter, you get on a boat, you take a trip to Jerusalem, you can talk to people, you can interview the eyewitnesses. So these people start seeing Jesus alive after they've seen him dead, and this emboldens them. You know, they start once again going around and preaching in the name of Jesus and talking about how he died and was buried and was raised from the dead. And and this is how we know the story of Jesus today. And in fact, it's the best reason we have to believe Jesus when he says that no one gets to the Father except through him Uh, because watch what happens the disciples start preaching in the name of Jesus again you know these guys that were cowards at the time of his death are emboldened by a resurrected Jesus in fact in Acts 4 there's this story about how the apostles healed a crippled man in the name of Jesus and they, they were brought before the authorities before the Sanhedrin for questioning you know Acts is a story of how the first church grew after the resurrection and it was written by Luke the scientist the detail man And so I love this, Acts chapter 4, verse 5. It says, The next day, the rulers, the elders, and the teachers of the law met in Jerusalem. Annas the high priest was there, and so were Caiaphas, and John, and Alexander, and others of the high priest family. Now Luke includes this detail, because his readers would know who Annas was, and who Caiaphas were, and John, and Alexander. So he's including this detail for his readers. Verse 7 they had Peter and John brought before them and began to question them by what power or name did you do this? Did you heal this man? Then Peter, look at the change, filled with the Holy Spirit said to them, rulers and elders of the people. This guy's a preacher, right? Rulers and elders of the people. If we are being called to account account today for an act of kindness shown to a man who was lame and are being asked how he was healed, then know this, know this, You and all people of Israel, it is by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, but whom God raised from the dead. And not 20 years ago, and not 100 miles away, but right over there, just a few weeks ago, you crucified him. Remember that? And he was raised from the dead. It's by his name that this man stands before you healed. And then they quote some Old Testament scripture, which is really important, but we don't have time to go into the stone. You builders rejected, which has become the cornerstone. That's Jesus. Verse 12. And then Peter says this, and this is brilliant. This is brilliant for Peter. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. Now, see, he didn't get that from himself he got that from jesus not sure he believed it but now he's seen jesus alive and so now he knows that what jesus has told him is true what are you going to Oh, i'm going to skip down to verse 16 sorry what are we this is the the sanhedrin what are we going to do with these men they asked everyone living in jerusalem knows that they have performed a notable sign they healed this guy and we cannot deny it they say but to stop this thing from spreading any further among the people we must warn them to speak no longer to anyone in this name this name they can't even say it there's power in the name of jesus you know that so you probably already know that because you may have a situation where when you go to your family it's okay for you to talk about god or it's okay for you to pray at dinner but man if you start talking about jesus whoa i don't know don't bring him into this house you know, or, or at work, maybe it's okay if you, you hang some Bible verses on your wall or if you talk to your friends about God, but if you start talking about Jesus, well, I don't know, I don't want, want to be around any of that freaky stuff, right? There's power in the name of Jesus. Verse 18, Then they called them in again, and they commanded them not to speak or teach at all in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John replied, Which is right in God's eyes, to listen to you or to Him? You be the judges. <clears throat> But this is great. This is the key. Verse 20. But as for us, we cannot help speaking about what we believe. No. We cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. And what an incredible change we see in the disciples who just a few weeks ago were afraid of death. They ran away. You know, when Jesus was brought into captivity, they fled. They denied him. And now, just a few weeks later, the one thing that they were never quite sure of, the one claim that he made that they could never really understand, that he could defeat death, has come true. And they saw it. And they heard it. And if that can happen, then everything else that he said can be true. I mean, isn't it true, if somebody lies to you, that you remember that? That you always kind of keep that in your mind, and that they're not quite as trustworthy, even for a long time after they lie to you, right? But but if you have a friend that's always told you the truth, uh, that's never lied to you, that you trust them no matter what they say, that, that like they can tell you something and it's pretty far out, but you believe them because they've always been trustworthy, they haven't ever given you a reason not to be. And, and and as at this moment, as they stand before the Sanhedrin, we see a complete change in the attitude of the apostles. They they now know that everything Jesus told them must be true. And it culminates with Peter standing before all the religious leaders. His life hanging in the balance. And he says, salvation is found in no one else, for there's no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. The best evidence we have for Jesus being the one way to salvation is life change. You know, the best evidence we have is life change. It's the change we see after people encounter a resurrected Christ. You know, we see it in the disciples and how bold they become. You know, these guys that were afraid now stand bold in the face of authority after they've seen... A resurrected Jesus And you know The same thing's true for me and Just stepping away from the text for a minute the, the thing that I know in my life The reason I believe in my life That Jesus is the way, the truth, and the life Is the life change The things that have happened in my life I know what I was like before Jesus And I know what I'm like now And I don't mean to stand before you and tell you I'm perfect Or that I've got it all together But I can tell you my life is so much better after Jesus you know, I, I, I know what my thoughts were like before Jesus And I know what they're like now I know what my language was like before Jesus and I know what it's like now. I know what my marriage was like before Jesus and it was great. But man, I know what it's like now and it's different. You know, life change is the best reason we have to believe that Jesus is the way, the truth and the life. I have friends. I know what my friends were like before Jesus. And I know what they're like now. And I have to tell you, I've got friends that have been through counseling. You know, I've got friends that have been through 12 step programs I've got friends that have had spiritual awakenings and other kind of faiths and all of that stuff has been helpful. But none of it has the lasting impact of when my friends encounter a resurrected Jesus. You know, He is the way and the truth and the life. He makes all the difference. And the thing about His teaching is this. The thing about all of this, the cross, the resurrection, His teaching, it forces a decision. You know, what Jesus teaches forces us to make a decision what do you do with jesus you know you believe in god that's great what do you do with jesus i just want to close with this in his book mere christianity the great author c.s lewis said it this way he says i'm trying here to prevent anyone from saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him that i'm ready to accept jesus as a great moral teacher but i don't accept his claim to be god that is the one thing we must not say But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. So what about you? What do you do with Jesus? Is he the way, the truth, and the life? Only you can choose. Let's pray. God, I just ask that uh, right now that you would give us wisdom to know what to do with this this morning. Father, I know that there's, uh, in this room, I know that some of us are living halfway in your kingdom and halfway out. You know, that there's a great number of us that accept some of what you say, and but not all of what you say. And God, I just pray that you would give us the boldness today and this week uh, to have great faith and great courage and, and know what you say is true and what you teach is true and real and right. Lord, I, I just pray this morning for the people that are struggling with this belief. I, I pray that you would give them great faith that you would help them to understand that you came and you died for their sins and that you were buried and that you rose again on the third day so that we could have eternal life. I just pray that you would help us to understand that, that you would help us to keep that fixed in our brain and in our heart, Lord. And God, I know this morning that in a room like this, there, there are people here that haven't, don't even have that relationship with you, that haven't made that commitment yet. And so I just want to ask, uh, with every eye closed and every head bowed, if you're in that boat today, if you've never... Uh, given your life over to Jesus Christ and you want to do that this morning uh, I want to pray for you would you just signify by raising your hand right now if, you, if you've never made Jesus Christ the Lord of your life and you want to do that this morning I'd love to pray with you uh, we can pray this prayer together pray this with me uh, Father God I just pray that you'd come into my life uh, send your Holy Spirit into my life to, to be the leader of my life God I can't do this anymore without you I need you and your Son and your Spirit to be in my life and to help guide me Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you now as we go to a time of worship that our hearts would be aligned with yours, God. In Jesus' name, amen.